So we're drawing to the end of the Vasa. Tends to be a time bring up that reflection. The days and nights <clears throat> are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? Seems like only a few days ago was the entering of the rains. Now we're almost at the end. Time waits for nobody. It's a constant theme that the Buddha brought up, pointed out to people listening to him. Just the impermanent nature of this world we live in. The unexpected things that happen, changing conditions in ourselves, in the lives of others, in the world around us. And then ultimately the impermanence of our life we're not here for that long. And the task of cultivating skillful qualities, abandoning unskillful qualities, developing ourselves in the Dhamma. For most people it's not a quick and easy process. It takes time. The more time we dedicate to it, then the more chance of seeing some progress. But for all of us, it's a long-term commitment to the practice if we really want to improve and change and develop our minds. But we don't know how much time we have so it's as if every moment is precious. So another exhortation of the Buddha is to bring up that sense of urgency, sangweka, urgency to continue with the practice, keep putting effort into the practice because we don't know how long we've got. So already our good fortune to have met with the Buddha's teachings. And those teachings have been proven to be very liberating because they all point to the truth and human, human beings can make use of those teachings following the path of practice and reflecting on the Dhamma. They can make use of the teachings to change their minds for the better and remove delusions. As you practice, you might notice how easy it is just to hold to different views and opinions and delusions without realizing it. A delusion is always there underlying our thinking 
in the way we relate to the world because we haven't trained our minds fully yet. As the person asked Lumpur Cha, how do you contemplate delusion? Because by its nature, it's confusing you and hiding the truth. Where is delusion? This is like somebody riding on a horse asking, where's the horse? It's right there. But we don't see it. And the way to see delusion and see through it is to cultivate the path. You use the path of practice. Developing samaditi, right view, right understanding, training the mind to reflect and look at the Dhamma and bring up samasati, samasamati with awareness, with mindfulness to cultivate <coughs> peaceful, harmful, uh, harmless behavior so we're not stirring ourselves up too much so we keep the sila, practice right livelihood all of this comes together to help the mind to gain clarity and awareness in our daily life and from moment to moment. So some of the truths that the Buddha was pointing to become clearer and some of that delusion that's been affecting us starts to fade. And sometimes it's very clear when you have seen through a viewpoint or an attachment or some kind of self-view or conceit that you've held on to and then it fades out under the influence of mindfulness and wisdom. You see through it and you wonder how on earth did you follow that way of thinking and viewing the, the world, viewing life, viewing ourselves for so long when it was obviously delusion. Often it needs external prompting. So we listen to the Dhamma. We study the Dhamma. Then we draw it into our minds and hearts and we have to internally use the framework of the Dhamma teachings the Buddha gave, the Four Noble Truths, to try and ease up the, or ease off the kind of overcovering of delusion that surrounds our minds. You have to sort of break through it or lever it off a bit like some kind of heavy lid over a hole or something. You have to kind of lever it off little by little. Like when they empty the septic tanks, you have to lever up the concrete lid. And delusion can be lifted off just like that. If if all our faculties, our indriya, our baramiya, ready, then maybe it can be all lifted off in a moment very quickly. Just like those people listening to Dhamma talks from the Buddha. But most of the time it has to be worked at, chipped away at, levered, moved, until you can see some movement and see a gap through the deluding view that we may have been holding on to.
We have to keep working away at it. But listening to the Dhamma, reflecting on it will provide some supportive conditions for that. And then just basic mindfulness practice in daily life. Learning to pay attention to this body, the mind, nama, rupa. Pay attention to see the way way it is. You know, this body is made up of the four elements and it goes according to nature. There's only so much you can do to control it and make it the way you want. And the mind is the same, the contents and the functions of this mind, feeling arises according to causes and conditions. That's just the way it is. We're using the Dhamma and wisdom and then mindfully paying attention to see some of these truths as they are arising to change or break through some of the delusions, change our attitude to the ourselves and the world we live in so that we're a bit more in line, our minds are in line with the truth. Our views, our way of looking is in line with truth rather than just our views and opinions and our preferences and how we would like things to be, which is where all our suffering comes from, constantly following desires and attachment to views rather than being in line with the truth. It reminds me of that story of the Brahmin who came wandering up the Kichiguta mountain when the Buddha was staying there. Sariputta was attending on him. Sariputta wasn't enlightened yet, says Sotapanna. And the Brahmin came up the hill. He's looking for a place to die where no one else had died. He wants a nice pure piece of ground that he can say this is where I'm going to die and no one else has died here. That's a kind of view isn't it? Seeking purity in different things where it's maybe impossible. So the Buddha said why are you here? I'm looking for this place. You can't find such a place because every corner of the world somebody has died there in the past. There's no such pure place in existence. Because the nature of Sangsara is so long, there's always somewhere, somebody has died there in the past, maybe many times. And the Buddha talked to the Brahmin, questioned him about his, his views. And his view was that whatever doesn't suit him, he doesn't want. Whatever I don't like don't, doesn't suit me, I don't want it, it's not for me. Anything in this world, if it doesn't suit me, I don't want it. And the Buddha said, well, that view is not correct. Even that, the view itself doesn't suit you. You shouldn't hold on to that. The Brahmin is a bit confused, but the Buddha says, well, you, do you want old age? No, well, but you're going to get it. Do you want sickness? No you're going to get it, you're going to experience it. Do you want death? No. And little by little the Buddha is chipping away at his wrong fixated view. 
in his own conceit and pride started to uh, settle down a bit and he opened up to listening to the Buddha. And the Buddha talked about how this body conditioned thing made up of the four elements and you can't control it, own it, make it be the, the way you want. You know, it gets ill when you don't want it to get ill, gets injured when you don't want it to get injured. It'll get old when you don't want it to get old and it'll die when you don't want it to die. It's made up of earth, air, fire and water and those elements are in their nature they're constantly changing constantly degrading, changing around, dissolving, coming together, coalescing, breaking apart. That's the nature of the physical world, or Rupa Dhamma. It's only us humans we give a name to the body, and once the, we're born and we're given a name and we create a personality and a whole personal history around this body, we assume all kinds of things and that's why we get so much suffering because in the end it doesn't follow our assumptions and our wishes. And the Buddha said all the wrong views that we attach to and they just cause us in the end they come back and bite us, cause us suffering. So some people are very pessimistic, nihilistic, attached to the view that there's nothing in the world that really matters. You can. There's nothing like karma. Karma doesn't exist. Actions and the fruits of actions doesn't exist. We're born maybe sort of out of some kind of random process. When we die, that's it. Finish. Some people are very negative. Say they don't like anything in this world. Don't want anything. It's all bad. It's all wrong. Rotten. Some people are the opposite. They have a view, everything in the world is what they want, what they like. They want everything, want to experience everything, have every kind of happiness, like everything. Some people have a mixture. Some things they like, some things they don't like. There's a whole variety of views human beings have. But when they're held to with delusion and in a fixed way, then they, they still bring suffering. The mind is not in line with the truth. And the Buddha was discussing this with the Brahmi, gradually started to open up and then turn his attention inwards instead of just clinging to his view and arguing around it. He turned his attention inwards to look at the truth of the way this body, this mind are. The five candors are impermanent. What's impermanent is dukkha cannot provide lasting happiness, subject to degeneration, aging, change, beyond our control, and ultimately they break apart. You can't hold on to any one of the kendas and make it be the way you want. They're impermanent, conditioned things. It's as if leading the Brahmin through you might see almost like a guided meditation reflecting on the kendas to the point where the delusion the Brahmin had lifted. So the 
wisdom the Buddha pierced through it, so it's the light or the clarity of awareness and wisdom started to come through. So he accepts, hmm, this is, this is the way it is. And when there's some clarity like that, then the mind naturally lets go of its views. It doesn't have to force it. It just naturally happens when you see the truth. Then there's nothing more to hold on to in terms of a view or an ideal. So the Brahmin attained Sotapanna and Sariputta listening became Arahant. We're not fortunate enough to be living in the time of a living Buddha, but we have all his teachings still available to us. And we have living masters who have practiced and realized for themselves, like Ajahn Chah. So we're still very fortunate to have a way, a vehicle of practice that we can apply. As I said, we... Time is running out for all of us. The days and nights are endlessly passing. So we have to keep arousing this sense of urgency to bring out more effort, even when we're facing our own moods and different mental experience or we're facing physical tiredness or illness and all the different obstacles that humans have to go through. Of course, they'll come up. But we have to arouse some effort and energy to keep practicing and make all of that part of the practice. It's all part of the practice. Whatever's arising into your consciousness, feelings, emotions, thoughts, physical pain or pleasure, it's all part of the practice. The practice isn't in another place, another time. It's not something we're going to do in the future. It's not something we did in the past when we had some good meditation or on retreat in the past and we cling on to the memory. It's not something in the future where we're building hope so I'll go and practice there or do this, do that. Practice is always right here in the present moment where we are right now. <clears throat> Our candors are with us right now. They're arising, changing, ceasing, right here, right now. It's one of the things that always attracted me to the Buddhist path is that you don't have to go anywhere special. You don't need a lot of equipment or accessories to practice what the Buddha taught because all you need is this six foot long body even if you're not six foot that's what the saying is six foot long a couple of feet wide that's all you need to practice a body and a mind Nama Rupa whether you're on your own or you're with other people whatever your posture wherever you are it's always an opportunity to practice, bring up mindfulness, reflect on what's going on. And it's the well-trained mind that brings happiness. Chitang dang tang sukhawahang. The well-trained mind brings happiness because if you put effort into developing these skillful qualities, the sila, 
the mindfulness, the wise reflection, the wisdom, then the mind responds. So it's, again, it's, it's just a law of nature. If you apply mindfulness and wisdom, that affects the mind in one way. It tends to brighten the mind, calm the mind. You gain the immediate peace of mindfulness arising and then you get the maybe a lot more long-term clarity of right view with the presence of wisdom. You might say it's just a law of nature. If mindfulness and wisdom are present in the mind, kilesa cannot be present. Simple as that. If you bring up a moment of mindfulness, you establish mindfulness of your posture or the breath or anything else, at that moment, kilesa cannot be in your mind because you can't have two things in the mind at the same time. So we always have the opportunity to do that, even though kilesas re-emerge and we get caught into our different thought patterns and moods, cravings and attachments. The more effort we summon up to bring up mindfulness, the more that becomes a powerful, wholesome, skillful conditioning factor in our mind. And all the practice we are doing is going in that direction. Whether it's just simple acts of dana or kindness we show to each other and others, mindfully keeping the vinaya, going about our business. The more we do it, the more it's creating the conditions for these wholesome dhammas to arise. And the more we're restraining the unwholesome dhammas gradually changing the way the mind is. Restraining the unwholesome dhammas, preventing them arising or helping us to the abandon those that have arisen. And this is right effort in daily life. As I said earlier, often it's our views on the practice about ourselves, our life, the practice that are often a big obstacle because they keep conditioning certain ways of thinking. When I say view, I mean a view we attach to in a fixed way and often we don't reflect on it, whether it's true or not. What's its nature, that view? How is it affecting me? Is it bringing suffering or not? The Buddha would say, Ditu Padana. You know, we have craving and then based on the arising of craving over time, then we form a view. So like craving for pleasant things, we form the view that those pleasant objects are good for me, they're what, what I need, what I want, they're right for me. So the mind keeps seeking out certain pleasant experiences, pleasant things or things we identify with will bring us pleasure. Experiencing Vipavadanha, a negative kind of craving, craving to get rid of, push away. Over time we build a view, a strong view, and these, these objects that are more unpleasant are not for me, not good for me. If we never reflect on that view and see where it's coming from, well, it just takes over the mind, becomes ditu badana, it just becomes a clinging, something we cling to automatically becomes part of our personality and way of looking at the world. 
And the only way to deal with that is to start interrupting the process with mindfulness and some wise reflection. Challenging, looking more deeply at the views we hold. Is it really a wise view that leads to my contentment, my happiness, suffering or suffering? Is it leading to happiness and suffer or suffering of others? Is it leading to the happiness or suffering of myself? Sometimes you see it with aditanas, we may, especially in the Vasa, we may aditanas, I'm going to do something for a period of time, a certain practice, maybe dedicate ourselves to a certain number of hours of meditation or staying up all night, or eating in the bowl or just doing certain practices, but over time, sometimes we find obstacles come up. You might get, so you fall ill. You've got an aditana that you're trying to complete, and then you fall ill. You get sick, or you have some kind of injury. And what do you do? Sometimes you see the you're seeing the power of the, the clinging to the aditana, and it's not necessarily wrong, but then if it's starting to become something that harms you, mm. maybe you have to loosen the, uh, the clinging at that moment just because unexpected conditions come up. If you keep on clinging, just doing it, and making yourself more physically in pain or mentally pushing yourself so you're very miserable, well, there has to be a point where mindfulness and wisdom says, this is not good, this is not working for me. Sometimes it's like that with aditanas or different views about how we should practice what's right, right for me, what's correct. Sometimes doing the very opposite can help expose an attachment to a view. You notice when you say when you're very irritated with other people, you want to be on your own. And sometimes that's the very time to stick with being with other people and observe a view as just a view, it's just a thought with a certain emotional feeling coming up. But instead of following it, which kind of reinforces it and makes us more blind to the delusion, the deluding effect of it, we just push through it by just watching it and not following it. It was like Lumpur put when he realized he had an aversion to certain monks in the monastery. He was living in a monastery with a big community of monks. And he didn't like the way it always affected his behavior. How when these monks, he was with them, he'd always feel irritated, negative thoughts came up, wasn't happy. Whereas other monks he was happy with, the ones he called his friends. So instead of following his basic feelings and craving to stay with his friends and avoid the ones he didn't like, did the exact opposite to teach himself. Spent time with the monks that he didn't naturally get on well with to the point where he could just see it's just a view that deludes the mind, saying I don't like their, some aspect of their character or their background or something or other that was prompting negativity, just kept watching it, learning from that experience to the point where the mind went quiet and no longer brought up negativity to be with those monks.
if it's things we like, then sometimes we have to take them away, maybe tem temporarily, but it's just as a way to see the suffering of attaching to our likes and preferences. Let's say some kind of food that you really like. You make a decision just to stop eating that food for a while, that particular kind of food. If you keep eating it, well obviously if it's available you can just keep indulging your preference. You always will follow along. You won't see the attachment, the clinging to the view that it's what you like, what's good for you. you but if you deliberately stop taking that particular kind of food for a while, well you'll see a reaction in the mind. The mind will complain. Why do I have to not eat it? I want it. But that's where you're seeing delusion at work, the delusion that feeds the particular greed or attraction, attraction for a particular taste. So sometimes we expose our views and opinions like that. We don't follow our attractions and we don't follow our aversions. The idea to be bringing up mindfulness to keep the mind more steady in the middle rather than keep swinging between the likes and the dislikes. As Lumpur Cha used to say, our minds, if we're not training them, they're just like leaves on the tree. They'll just blow where the wind blows, them, the leaves will go. Our minds are the same. You know, if we're not very mindful, if someone praises us, we like it, puts us in a good mood. Someone criticizes us, puts us in a bad mood. Simple as that, it's just words, ear consciousness arising, sanya arises, we interpret the words, give meaning to them, and then it puts us in a mood. Like it, don't like it. If we like it, then we maybe we identify with that person as someone we call a friend or someone we look up to or someone we feel happy with. If it's criticism, we tend to go to aversion, want to stay away from that person, dislike them, maybe want to get at them. But that's not seeing the truth, that's just being like a leaf on a tree blown around by the wind. It's just following our preferences. We like praise and we don't like criticism. If you want some to experience liberation, then you establish mindfulness all the time. Before you even give in to the reaction, you might have the unpleasant feeling of the criticism or the pleasure of the praise, but you stop there by establishing mindfulness and don't let the mind proliferate on building up the pleasure and the excitement with the praise or the depression or the anger with the criticism. Just keep the mind in the middle with mindfulness and say, oh, it's like this. Praise is like this. Criticism is like this. Getting the things I want is like this. Not getting the things I want is like this. And this is a training, a training in mindfulness and then wise reflection to our experience. And it's a training so you get better at it, you get more skilled at it. So your ability to maintain the calm and clarity with mindfulness and wisdom improves. 
So these sort of experiences bother you less. You're not craving excitement and pleasure so much. You're not suffering and experiencing aversion with the unpleasant experiences so much because you're learning to keep your mind in the middle. This is the place of practice. Balance, mindfulness, so that our wisdom faculty can reflect with intelligence and fluently. In the end, our aim is just to see the truth. So, I mean, if you're training yourself, whether it's in the Vinaya or the Dhamma or any aspect of our life, if someone says something, praise or blame, rather than just going with the emotional reaction, you, you contemplate, is it true? What they say, do those words make sense? Are they truth applying to the truth or are they coming from something else? Just their own person's prejudice or bias or their own mistaken understanding or whatever. There's a whole range of situations we experience. But we have to learn to establish mindfulness and reflect rather than just react all the time. This is where your mind starts to rise up a little bit from the, all the worldly dhammas that affect us. It's not so bothered whether you get exactly what you want or sometimes we get unpleasant experiences. The mind itself is not so bothered. It's going more to just the basic awareness of impermanence, you know, the conditioned nature of this world we live in and the experiences we have where they're not sure. Today it's praise, tomorrow it's criticism. Today I get the food I want or the thing I want, tomorrow I don't. And that's life, but most of the time people are not observing it with mindfulness and wisdom, so they're constantly falling into moods of happiness and suffering. When you establish mindfulness, then there's a lightness, an ease to the mind. And it's not based on just getting what you want. It's just it's based on having the, the mindfulness, the awareness to see the nat true nature of phenomena, physical, mental phenomena that we're involved with and experience. The sense of independence, not having to be always blown around by those winds like the leaves on the tree. The mind is more at ease, even when very challenging things come. Things that normally would make most people very unhappy, fall ill or something happens, or have a big problem in your life. All very good things happen. Either way, the mind doesn't want to go just to the emotional reaction, the craving, the attachment. It'd rather stay with mindfulness and awareness and contemplate. Sanjay to say contemplation becomes enjoyable, even unpleasant things that you have to contemplate. It's enjoyable because you're learning the process by which craving and attachment forms and you're unwinding it, unraveling it, and you can see the good you're doing yourself, being a little bit more aloof and unattached to things. People use different vehicles or different approaches. You know, some people just contemplate the impermanence of things, how it changes. Oh, today they praise me, tomorrow they criticize me. Today I got a really nice meal, tomorrow oh, not such a good meal. Just the changing nature of conditions. Other people contemplate dukkha all the time, seeing the dukkha arising in their mind. That's their 
the thing they notice and observe more. They contemplate the dukkha. They don't want dukkha in their minds, so they're constantly noticing where dukkha comes from, how it forms. You see, if you hold on to a fixed view tightly, you cling on to a view, it's, it's a form of dukkha because it constantly is affecting your outlook, the way you look at your life, yourself, the world. It's like a heavy thing, isn't it? It's, we say, oh, my, I sh- I should, my life should be like this. I should get these things. I should do these things. That's what I want. So when conditions support your view, you're happy. But as soon as they're not supporting your view, you become unhappy. It's just automatic because you're holding to that view rather than being more independent, observing with mindfulness and wisdom. Zajan Chah said, you know, it's like carrying a heavy thing, this view that you're holding on to. This is me, and this is how things should be. But as long as things are not the way you want, you're unhappy. So it's like holding a heavy object. You know, like when we attach to all the different experiences, particularly you know, in the West, we tend to be more negative. So if things are not quite going our way, not getting what we want, not getting the peace we want from our samadhi, not getting the respect or recognition from other people, not getting the sense pleasures that we like. <coughs> we start to carry around a kind of a negative view of ourselves and our lives, feel a bit depressed or lonely or gloomy. We have to work hard to bring up mindfulness to correct that so we're not just falling into a view. You know, we fall into a view um, my life is difficult, my practice is not going well, things are hard. You know, it'll affect your whole mood, the way you think, the way your emotions are. Ajahn Chah says it's like carrying a heavy burden. As a man once came to see Ajahn Chah when he was on the work site, they're building the Bozada Hall at Wabapong. And he was just talking about all the suffering of his his life, his job, all the responsibilities of earning money and the debts and then the trouble with his family and bringing up the family, bringing up the kids and getting on with his wife. It was just suffering after suffering that he was carrying around in his head. And Jin Charles said, again, you see, you're just clinging on to all these things and identifying with them as you, yourself. There may be unpleasant experiences arising in your experience, but they're just arise and pass away, but you're identifying with them as you, so you're suffering. Do you like suffering? No, no, I don't like suffering. And Ajahn Chah, because he was working, gave him a bucket to hold. Maybe it was a bucket with some sand or some water. All the time, Ajahn Chah is talking to the man, explaining about how he's attaching to his suffering, identifying with it. He's getting him to hold the bucket until the end of the conversation, the man was feeling happy because someone was listening to him about his suffering. And then Ajahn Chah says, so how do you feel carrying this bucket now? Is it heavy? And he says, oh yeah, it's really heavy. He hadn't noticed, because he'd been talking so long to Ajahn Chah, but now he noticed the feeling. Ajahn Chah said, well if it's heavy, then put it down. So he put it down. And then he says, now how do you feel? Oh, relief. Feel so much better when I put it down. Sajan Charles, well, that's what you have to do with all these heavy burdens of suffering that you keep holding on to in your mind. You have to release them, let them go, put them down. 
you have to be the one who tell yourself to do that. Be mindful enough to recognize what you need to do. Just put things down. Why can we put them down? It's because the anatta is the third characteristic. Some people find that is the, their particular vehicle or method for contemplating to, to abandon their attachments and see through their delusions. You just contemplate the lack of self in experience. It's just a conditioned thing, the views we hold on to, who we are, this body, this mind, our views, our opinions, our emotions. Learning to see through them, not just take them all personally, identify with them so strongly, but seeing they're more just conditions that arise and cease. So the mind is more in touch with the mind of emptiness or a lack of self or anatta. In the end you see all three characteristics. When you see one, you see the others. But sometimes our personality just responds better to one. Some people find impermanence more of a theme to keep focusing on, observing anicca sanya. Some people it's just dukkha. They just see the inherent dukkha in attachment and attachment to the candor, so they keep moving towards letting go of dukkha and seeing through it. Others go to anatta, just the emptiness of experience, going back towards the more pure mind. The mind is not just forming identification with all physical, mental phenomena that we are engaged with in our daily life. What's impermanent is not self, is it? If it was self, it would be permanent. A thought comes and goes and it's teaching you an, an anatta at that moment because it's, it's not self. But you have to have enough awareness to see a thought arise and cease a feeling arise and cease and notice oh, it's not permanent so it's not self can't be self if it's not permanent it rises passes away that's a liberating insight but we have to apply it with mindfulness keep bringing up mindfulness so that that insight can actually see clearly through the delusions and not just you know, we we all say, oh, I understand it intellectually. The books, I understand them, I read them, yeah, I know them. It's not enough. We actually have to apply, pay attention as these different moments of suffering and different mental proliferations, moods that we get caught into as they come up. That's where we have to apply those reflections with mindfulness. As we do it, then we get better at it, becomes, become more skilled at it. Then you trust more in the process of what you're doing. Because if you've seen it work once, you can trust that it all can work again. If you let go of something once through seeing it as impermanent or dukkha or not self, you can do it again. If you let go of something small, maybe you can also let go of something bigger in a more profound way. So we always have the chance to practice wherever we are, whatever we're doing, and all the experiences we're having are fruits 
or food for the practice. And we have to turn it into the practice and don't just let the delusion sort of sit on us and squash us, but actually have to keep summoning up some effort, bring up more mindfulness, keep reflecting, listening to the Dhamma, reflecting on it, pondering it, considering it, contemplating it. You find over time this is where true wisdom arises, this is where liberation arises. So for now I'll leave you with these reflections.